Welcome to Season 2, Episode 46 of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host Ben, joining me today is Avner Landings. Before we start our interview with Avner Landis, we have some voicemails to play. First off, we have Seth from Sydney. Morning, Ben. Seth here from Waste Mailing List, tuning in from Sydney, Australia. I'm calling to help spread the word about the upcoming release of Solenoid by the Romanian author Mircea Cardarescu. I became immediately fascinated with this book several years ago when Andre of the Untranslated, one of my foremost intellectual influences, called it the greatest surrealist novel ever written, and one of the four greatest explorations of the fourth dimension, paralleled only by Mikhail de Palol's El Troy Accord, Thomas Pynchon's Against the Day, and Alan Moore's Jerusalem. This novel was originally published under the Romanian press Humanitas in 2015, and has since waited seven long years for an English translation. Professor Sean Cotter, who came to literary notoriety after translating the first volume of Cartarescu's other major work, Orbitor, has done us Anglophones a massive service by adapting Solenoid into English. This translation will be released under the Dallas-based independent press Deep Vellum in October later this year. If Orbitor, which I discussed at length on my own YouTube channel, is any indication of the exuberance and psychedelic density we can expect from Solenoid, then I have no doubt that it will be well worth the price of printing. Now, I have no formal affiliations with Deep Vellum, nor do I have any financial interest in the novel's success. However, in saying that, Solenoid represents for me a watershed moment in contemporary literary fiction. Anyone who's had their ear to the ground with respect to modern publishing should probably be aware that the industry is suffering a sort of regression to the mean. Supply chain issues, media saturation, and a dwindling readership across the board have compelled most publishers to make selections that favor works with a, how shall we say, broader critical appeal. We're talking a whole lot of potboiler thrillers, kitchen sink realism, and heartfelt but safe character studies. More and more, we are seeing a diffusion of narrative content across the literary spectrum that is flattening all nuance and experimentation into a dull hum. Solenoid is a refusal to participate in what's commercial and instead leans into the furthest creative depths of the author's mind. Through determination, persistence, and annoying the living hell out of Deep Vellum's publicity team, I've managed to get my hands on an advanced copy of the novel. I assure you, everything that Andre has said about it is entirely true. This is one of the strangest, most abstract, and linguistically Herculean texts I've read in recent years. And so the purpose of this voice note is to try and convince as many of your listeners as possible to pre-order this book. We are extremely privileged to have publishers like Deep Vellum who are still willing to take massive commercial risks on difficult and demanding works like these. Pre-orders are one of the simplest ways that us as readers and stakeholders in this type of fiction can support their continued circulation. So I hope you'll consider picking a copy of Solenoid yourselves. Love the show, mate. Talk soon. Thanks, Seth. I heartily agree with everything you've said. 
I really think people should go out and pre-order this book. It is unbelievable from what I've read so far. I'm about halfway through and can't wait to finish this book. It is really one of my picks of the year so far. Deep Velloman, Dalky Archive are doing a great job and really we should be supporting them because they're doing stuff that other publishers aren't doing. Also, if you're not following The Untranslated, I think that is a fantastic resource for readers. You can get on Andre's Patreon, which is really highly recommended. I think it's a great idea to support what he's doing because he is bringing us a world of books that aren't in English yet, for the most part. And without him, I don't think we'd see things like Solenoid in print in English. I'll put links to his blog and his Patreon in the show notes. Also, don't forget to check out Seth's latest video with Mark De Silva, former guest of the show, talking about the logos. It's a great video. Next, we have a message from John from the Isle of Man. Hi, it's John Dixon here from the Isle of Man, soon to be working with Rick Harsh on his filmed project for Corona Samistat. Right, I suggest Robert Stickley should get him on the show to talk about abended security. It'll be very interesting. There'll be lots of people would like to hear what Robert has to say. Thanks, John. I'm really fascinated about that film with Rick. It sounds amazing. With Robert, I have his book here and I'm going to read it very soon and I have reached out to him to come on the show. We may do it on the podcast or we might do it as an interview by text, but we'll see. But stay tuned. He will be on here in some form. Next, we have one of my favorite people, Courtney S. Gray. I wanted to recommend a book by Natalia Ginsberg called The Dry Heart. It's quite a short book, but it's very poetic and when I read it probably a few months ago now I just thought it was brilliant. It's such a a poetic novel with a sort of, it's a thriller essentially, a psychological thriller, but not in the way you think really. It's more of a literary psychosis kind of thing about marriage and if anything should say that you need to read it it's this particular line from the first page which is I shot him between the eyes but it's by Natalia Ginsberg and I think she's such an underrated author she's dead now but was is completely underrated and not many people know about her thanks Courtney I haven't read her yet but that's a great recommendation I will go out and get that book it sounds fantastic and now we're going to go to Ben from London. Hi, Ben. Another Ben coming at you from Archway in North London, UK. Some book recommendations for you. Mr. Phillips, John Lanchester, In Praise of Older Women, Stephen Vicinci, A Matter of Life and Sex, Oscar Moore, Boxer Beetle, Ned Bowman, Limonov, Emmanuel Carrere, HHHH, Laurent Binet, We Don't Know What We're Doing, Thomas More, Only Americans Burn in Hell, Jarrett Kobeck, The Warehouse Industry, William Macbeth. Out of Sheer Rage, Jeff Dyer, Sourheart, Jenny Zhang. Keep up the great work with the podcast. Can't believe how regularly you put out episodes. Lovely stuff. Bye. Thanks, Ben. That's a great list of books. Uh, There's quite a few on there that I haven't read yet and I'd love to have a look at. Now we head over to Shane Christmas from Australia. Hi, uh, this is Shane Just Christmas. You should reach out and invite... Thomas Moore onto your podcast. I think he is someone that you would get a real good kick out of having a chat to. Thanks, Shane. I've reached out to Thomas and I've got a couple of his books now and he will be appearing on the show sometime in the future. So stay tuned. 
Thanks for all your messages. If you ever want to leave us a voice message, we will play it on the show. Go to anchor.fm forward slash beyond zero. And now we head over to Tel Aviv for our feature interview with Avner Landis. Avner Zarada, whose debut novel, Meisel Man, The Lean Years, is out now through Tortoise Books. Welcome to the show, Avner. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. A real, real pleasure and joy. I, I love your podcast. I'm a real thrill to be on it. Thank you. Tell me about life in uh, Give Up Shmuel in summer, which is right near Tel Aviv. Yeah. So, yeah, Give Up is a suburb right outside Tel Aviv. It's uh, 15 minutes outside Tel Aviv without traffic, probably an hour 15 with traffic. But, uh, it's a, you know, it's not, I wouldn't say it's like a suburb, like in the United States, uh, where, you know, a lot of houses and a lot of grass, uh, we have a lot of pretty tall apartment complexes, uh, and it's kind of a, there's a big city center, uh, but it's, it's a nice city. Um, it's very hot, very, very hot right now in the summer. Uh, I was living in New York before this, after spending some time, I was in Israel, then New York, when I, where I went to get my MFA and I was in the city. And uh, just obviously very different than New York. Uh, I loved New York City. I really loved living there. There were a lot of great things about it. But I think at a certain point, uh, I kind of found it oppressive. Uh, and I think it'll sound strange for people to hear that I kind of, I found a little homogeneous there, especially now I live in a city that's almost 100% Jewish. But I think I mean more in the sense that everyone kind of thought the way I did, at least like politically and a lot of people uh, surrounded by a lot of people who read and very intellectual. And um, I don't know, after a while, I think I just found um, kind of couldn't separate myself when it was time to write. And now I live in a suburb and I'm kind of surrounded by friends who they're very smart and they're great to talk to, but you know, they don't read literary fiction and uh, you know, they read my book. That's about probably the last you know, uh, novel they read. And I, I, I like that. I like that aspect of kind of just being with a lot of people who think very differently than me about all different types of things. I feel very challenged uh, in many ways. Um, so yeah, I like, I like life here. For people who haven't been to Israel, I have, and I love the place, and I'm keen to get back there. But what are the kind of things that you would do as a tourist in Israel? Um, yeah, I guess, I guess pretty similar things to the things I do, you know, uh, living here. Uh, beach is great. Uh, hiking, you know, a lot of great hiking. There's a lot of great food in Tel Aviv. Um, it's just a very kind of chill Mediterranean vibe here, I'd say, uh, you know, a lot of kind of hanging out, uh, at all hours of the day. Um, and of course, I mean, there's you know, a ton of history here. Uh, I go to Jerusalem, uh, you see, you see it all, a lot of, a lot of great history and really travel the country. There's so many different types of areas. I mean, there's, you know, two hours North, you're in the mountains and then there's the coast and then you go to Jerusalem, which Jerusalem kind of like feels like it's from a different planet almost. It's so different. Um, 
but yeah, I'd say, yeah, just, uh, I think you can, you can come here to tour, but you can also just come here to kind of chill and relax, you know. And you've got two kids there now as well. What do you do for a day job? Uh, so for a long time, uh, for a long time, for three years, I was uh, ghostwriting. Uh, after I finished writing my book, uh, I kind of felt like I just needed to have more of like a set set job. So I started ghostwriting, and I did that for three years, and it was it was a really great job. Um, I mean, basically, I was working for this company that they guarantee people that they'll have a book within six months. And I'd say most of our clients are generally these type A successful business people who have decided that, you know, mid-career, they're going to become thought leaders and they need to have a book. So when they go like on Bloomberg TV, they could say it's author of how to get rich in 10 days. I don't know. Uh, those are a lot of the books, these kind of finance books of how to get rich quick or how to manage your money. Um, but then I did all, you know, other types of books. I, I did books for some politicians. I did books, uh, for, I did a book for a divorce attorney and I just really loved it. I mean, I think, I think as a writer, it really fed in, uh, to my work in a sense. Again, maybe what I was trying to get at earlier with saying kind of living around people who aren't writers, who aren't into reading, just this exposure to people who are doing all different types of things uh, in the world and kind of learning their language and learning how they operate and how they see the world was tremendously eye-opening. Um, I mean, I, I remember I was really started doing this was probably around the 2016 election and you know some of them were these like you know hardcore trump voters and again it's really interesting to hear people and how, how they how they interpret the world um and how how they see kind of how they see themselves in the world uh through their jobs i would say that's that was a really big part of it for me because that's something i'm very interested in is kind of this um these like two selves we have and I, I don't really mean in the sense of like the private self and the public self and we act so different in private than we do in public but really more in the sense of how our public selves take over our private selves um you, you end up working these jobs that you know especially for a lot of these people who a lot of them have their own businesses it really kind of becomes their whole identity and even the language they use, which is the language they're using in their finance job, let's say, becomes the language they even use uh, in, in their private lives. And as they talk, when they talk to you on the phone. Um, so, so I really, I really love that aspect of the job. Uh, it was really eye-opening. It taught me how to, like, I, I could write a book of like 60,000 words in four or five weeks. Um so, so it was a great job, but then it really started to kind of interfere with my own writing because, I mean, you're you're sitting there writing uh, someone else's book, you're you're hearing their voice uh, all day every day. So then I started moving more into editing, um, 
you know, like developmental editing for fiction and stuff like that. And occasionally I'll, I'll do a ghost writing project if the right one comes along. Yeah. I do have to ask you if you can reveal any of your secret projects, ghost writing, but I want to ask you specifically if you wrote the Nicki Minaj biography, Wet Ass Pussy. <laughs> I have not a lot to say, unfortunately. <laughs> I will say I, I, I never, I never wrote a book for a musician. I wrote a book for uh, an Instagram influencer, which was about, it went as you could imagine it would go. I mean, uh, as I said, a lot of like the people I work for, they're really successful people and they really kind of have it together. They're very organized. And there's almost like a reason why they became successful. And this Instagram influencer was just a disaster. Uh, <laughs> I, and and he, didn't, he didn't pay me my final payment because he just, he's like, well, He's like, everything's for, you know, we could work out a deal where I could get it for free. And I was like, you know, that's kind of just how I think these people run their lives of getting everything for free and not putting that much effort into anything, unfortunately. I mean, some of them do, I'm sure, but uh, it, was, it was an awful, awful project. But, uh, yeah. With the ghostwriting, was there anybody who you met who you thought was a complete, I guess, fuck up and writing their biography changed or writing their story changed your opinion of them? I mean, I had a, it is interesting, again, going back to like the private public, how people present themselves. So I guess I have like, there's one guy who wrote a book pretty much about kind of like life hacking. Everything's a hack. I wake up at 4.30 in the morning. I do my coloring and then I journal and then I have my cup of coffee with a slab of butter in it. And then I take my ice cold shower. And this guy, he was never on time for our calls. Sometimes <laughs> he would just flat out miss them. And it, it was always like, whenever he'd get on the phone, he's out of breath. And he's like, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know where, I didn't write it down what time our call was. Then one time we were on the phone, his car was getting uh, towed away because he hadn't paid his parking ticket. And it was interesting to see that as I got to know him more and more, like his life was completely like a mess. <laughs> and this book he wrote was pretty much all about how he has, you know, he's hacked his way through life. Um, and then, and then some people, like I wrote a book for a guy, you know, sometimes some very sad stories about, you know, people who have really been through everything and just awful, awful, you know, childhoods and uh really were able to overcome i think the awful childhood and 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 i think for me as the writer so yes in the book uh maybe i'm not uh, we don't talk about as much but i can see that they still suffer right so they present to the world that yes i've overcome and now i work for this bank and i'm super successful um but and i spend you know, 20, 25 hours with the person and, and you still see someone who really is in a lot of pain still, who still suffers, who, you know, every day life is a bit of a struggle. Um, but that's, you know, that's kind of really inspiring in its own way, probably more inspiring than the story of the person who, who doesn't feel anything anymore, but that, you know, but uh, he's the one who just keeps going. So yeah, I mean, and then some, some of them are just, 
real jerks. They're, you know, they, you sit there and you write the book for them. And then when you get to the end, they're just like, who are you? What did you do for me? Uh, I, you know, I don't need you anymore. Um, I, I, I wrote this book and I'm like, no, I don't think you wrote it. I, I kind of I wrote it. Uh, they just can't kind of, they can't process the idea that they had to rely on someone else to write their book. That just, and that, that's, uh, that's pretty common actually. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds fascinating. Cool. I want to take you back to Chicago of your youth. You grew up in a, I guess, a reasonably Jewish community in, uh, in Chicago, in Skokie. Do you want to tell us about growing up in that community and I guess your experience there? Um, yeah, you know, my family's a uh, real old time Chicago family, you know, part of it. I mean, my mom's family came in the late 1800s and my father's family, early 1900s. Uh, so we're like a long time Chicago family. Um, and I grew up in a suburb called Skokie. And the Skokie is, most people know, it's a very Jewish community. I grew up in a community within Skokie that I guess would be described as modern Orthodox. And the idea of modern Orthodox Judaism is really, you know, you live your Judaism to the fullest, but you also live your life to the fullest. That, that really nothing, you know, your Judaism should not interfere with living a full life. You know, you should be able to study whatever you want and do whatever job uh, you want to do. Um, and that Judaism really shouldn't stop you, but that it comes with a full commitment to Judaism. And so that those are the schools I went to. Um, and then I'd say, you know, in a certain sense, it was a very kind of typical, uh, you know, middle-class upbringing, of, you know, a lot, of, a lot of sports, a lot of girls, um, you know, a lot of hanging out. Um, but, you know, we went, we went to day schools where, the morning, let's say, we were learning Judaic studies till you know noon, uh, till one o'clock, and then we kind of switch over. And at one o'clock, we would switch over to you know math and English uh, and science, and then our school day would end in, in day school would end at you know three thirty four, and then when you get to high school, it ends you know five thirty six. So in, in that sense, maybe the school the schools are a little different. Um, but, you know, I think it was, I know a lot of people, they, you know, everyone likes to kind of dump on growing up in the suburbs. Um, and I think, yeah, I guess there, there's what to criticize about the suburbs, but I don't know. I mean, I, I, I look at it, I grew up in a, you know, pretty, pretty privileged. I'm very, you know, thankful that um, I was able to go to good schools and then I grew up in a community with, you know, not, not, not that much crime and I'm, I'm very, I mean, I think whatever problems the suburbs have, they're they're quite uh, minor compared to, unfortunately, what most people have to deal with. Um, and yeah, it was, it was I think a very good upbringing. And, you know, no no real complaints. Yeah. And after you finished school, you went to study and you went over to Bar Alan as well. But do you want to tell us, I guess, your experience uh, there, particularly learning that you wanted to become a writer? I suppose. Yeah, so so what's common in these modern Orthodox communities is when you graduate high school, before going to college, you go off to Israel to study in a yeshiva. Um, I mean, girls go to seminaries and the boys go to yeshivas. And basically what it is, is it's a year of just studying, uh, you know, Jewish texts 
all day uh, from nine in the morning until midnight uh, with very few breaks in the middle. And uh, I ended up going for two years. I went to a place uh, in Jerusalem. I studied for two years and it, it was, I'd say for the most part, really incredible experience. I, I absolutely love studying Talmud. I, I still do. I think like intellectually, I, I've always really loved it as a, uh, I love, I love the text. Um, and I would say culturally, I didn't love Yeshiva life. Um, I think what, like what happens a lot of times uh, in these religious institutions is you have the studying part, but then what happens is the students need to kind of take on these cultural uh, aspects of, uh, of Judaism to show that they're making advancements in the intellectual part or that the intellectual pursuit isn't purely intellectual, but it serves a spiritual purpose. So then people start dressing different and then you'll see, you know, they start wearing white shirts and black pants. I don't, I don't wear blue jeans anymore or uh, I don't go to movies anymore. I don't, you know, I don't talk to women anymore. Um, and again, it's this idea, I think, to show that the studying, it means something. I'm not just doing it to study. And I, I was kind of always the opposite. I studied because I like the studying. Um, I don't think religiously I changed too too much um and then it, you know so it got a little lonely for me because especially by my end of my second year I had all these uh friends of mine who had become you know stop going to the mall stop going to movies and uh, it was kind of like last man standing and uh so then after that I decided to, just to stay in Israel I'm kind of like a creature of habitat when I get stuck in a place, I just kind of stay there. And uh, I went to Barilan University, which is uh, near Tel Aviv. It's actually like a five minute walk from my home. And I studied political science and American history. And I really thought I was going to go uh, like do something in politics. Um, I mean, I should say like grow, growing up, I, I came from a home. We, we read a tremendous amount in the house. Like reading was super important to my parents. And they were always telling us, like, read, read, read. And they were always big readers. Um, but I was always kind of into nonfiction. I was uh, growing up, I, I had a lot of, I dealt with a lot of issues. I dealt, you know, mental issues, emotional issues. And I was really bad at school because of those issues. And reading was always this thing where, like, I could be a star. You know, I would read the, news, the newspaper and, you know, I'd read every article about, you know, civil wars happening in Africa, just so I could like bring it up in conversation. People would be like, oh, this kid's not a screw up. You know, like, look at him He's talking about civil wars in the, that are happening in Africa. And it kind of really gave me this. Uh, yeah, I guess it, 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 it made me feel good about myself, that reading at a time where I didn't have much reason to feel good about myself. Um, and, and that kind of continued it into university where I, I think I, I started, I was doing much, much better and I was taking school quite seriously and I was able to focus a lot better. And I thought, oh, I'm going to go into politics, you know, do something in politics. And I, I enjoyed studying political science, but I don't know, one day I was sitting in and I wasn't reading a lot of fiction, but I uh, was in a class called Brazilian history, 1500 to 1950. 
and there were like six of us in the class and it was a three hour lecture just straight and this <laughs> guy who had like been teaching it for 50 years just read off these pages and it was it was quite deadly and uh i just sat there i just started writing into a notebook and i was just writing a story i was writing fiction and i think at that point also i was like political science is really not a science it's kind of like these i would see like my professors for the most part they basically had their theory of how the world worked and whatever was happening in the world they would fit into that theory i mean it was kind of like the farthest thing from a, a science in a way and I started thinking like I'm not I'm not that person like I I don't have firm opinions I hate having firm opinions whenever I whenever I give my opinion I always end up feeling really bad about myself so, like <laughs> that I'm wrong I'm an idiot uh, everyone else thinks I'm an idiot I'm like I'm I don't think I'm like cut out to be that to be that person and so I started writing these stories. And I guess that got me interested in reading more fiction. And um, so then at that point, I started, you know, uh, re reading a lot and, and writing more. And then I went to Barilan had a creative writing program that I did, which then I got, you know, very in, into writing. Yeah. But I was, you know, a bit older at that point. I was already, you know, 22 or so, 23. Yeah. When I started. All right. Let's move on to your debut novel, uh, Meiselman. It's out through Tortoise Books. Your central character, Meiselman, he's a bit of a loser. He lives next door to his parents. <laughs> he's second in charge of the local library. He lives in a, I guess, a religious neighborhood uh, in Chicago as well. His wife's having trouble getting pregnant. He's feeling inferior to his brother. And a classmate he used to have has written a novel slamming the Jewish community and uh, causing a bit of controversy. And he's due to come back to the community to speak about his book at the library where Meiselman works. Can you tell us a bit about the setup of your book and your very interesting protagonist? Yeah, I mean, I should I should say he's the self-proclaimed number two. He, <laughs> he, uh, you know, whether he's really the number two to be debated, mm -hmm. uh, whether Schenkenberg has actually even really written a scandalous book, also somewhat to be debated. Mm -hmm. uh, so I guess it's interesting to start with, you know, how Meisman came to be. Um, so I, I was living in Israel and I decided I wanted to do an MFA program because I just really kind of wanted an intense environment. And I think also my wife kind of wanted to live in the United States for a couple years. So she would put all the applications on our dining room table in Israel and she'd be like, sign here, sign here. <laughs> I need, I need, I need an essay in a thousand words on a book you, you know, recently read. And, um, so I came from Israel and I, I did my MFA at Columbia and, I I just was so depressed the first year and a half with my writing because I think I felt that here I am, this kind of semi-international student. People are expecting me to write about Israel-Palestine. Or, you know, they, they they want Israel stories. That that's that's my mission. And I you know, I never really kind of wrote that stuff. Um, I didn't know how to write that stuff. And most importantly, like, I didn't care about to write that stuff. And I was writing these stories. And, and the truth is, you know, sometimes I'd get really positive reactions to them. And then I just would leave workshop and I'd be like, I hate this story. I'm never looking at it again. I'm just going like straight in the garbage. Um, I mean, I, I love the program. 
I love the rest of the program. I love the reading classes. I love, you know, all the different seminars, the work. And I liked, I did like workshop, but I hated my writing so much. And um, I guess everything starts with an image. There was, there was this guy at this coffee shop I used to see. He was with his family always. It's a really nice family. His wife and two kids were always joking and smiling. And this guy was the most serious dude in the world. And he was always, he's always shushing them. And he and he, he always had a scarf on. And I was like, man, that, that guy kind of couldn't get him out of my head. Uh, his like seriousness. And he just kind of had this thing. They just seemed so anxious. And then one night I was, had to do another submission. And this is already a year and a half into the program. And I was just anxious. I was like, I don't know what I'm going to write about. I hate this. I, I, my last submission was a complete flop. I hated that one. So, you know, I had probably two or three beers and uh, I sat down to write and, uh, you know, how came, you know, like 20 pages, uh, you know, over the next like three, four days of, uh, of what would be my woman. And, and right away, it was, it was such a departure for me. Like I felt it, that it was just like tremendous departure. And even my teacher at the time, uh, Benny Kirschenbaum. Like I, I remember she wrote on my, uh, on her comment, she's like, she's like, wow, wow, wow. You know, and not, not like, wow, wow, wow. This is amazing. But like, you've like, you've done something very different here. Like you've gone in a completely different way. And uh, yeah, I think it's kind of crazy how in that one moment, everything I guess had been building up to this um, like really like change of style or me, I guess, People would say finding your voice or something. And uh, yeah, it was really kind of based on this book called CERN. And um, and uh, yeah, yeah, I write the, wrote the book. It took me like five, six years to write the book. And I think the best part when you finish writing the book is to kind of try to figure out like, what is, what is this book really about? And uh, at the time of writing it, I didn't understand how, so, so Meiselman may or may not suffer humiliation at the beginning of the book at the hands of Schenkenberg, this visiting writer. And Meiselman decides, like, I'm done taking crap from people. I'm, you know, I'm done being the timid one. I'm going to change, I'm going to change my life. And then he starts looking forward to the event with Schenkenberg where he determines he's going to come out on top. And when I finished writing the book, it kind of dawned on me, like, is this an exceptional week in Meiselman's life? Or is this just every week in Meiselman's life, right? And I think we often do that. We have some type of relationship where, oh, I, I hate when my dad talks to me like that. You know, he always puts me down. Not, not my real dad. My dad doesn't put me down. But uh, I, I hate when my dad puts me down. I'm not going to take that anymore. And you said you look forward to that next phone call where you're determined that you're going to turn the tables. And uh, it never works out. It never works out, you know, or maybe, maybe the progress you make is quite minimal. And, and the second that happens, you don't, I don't think most of us, we don't feel defeated, but we set up that next moment again. And we're just constantly going through life, setting up these moments of, I feel terrible. How can I make it that I feel less terrible next time? So, uh, you know, I kind of, that's how I kind of frame the book now. Um, you know, this question of like self-improvement 
is it futile? Is it not futile? But maybe maybe we look at it wrong that we're never going to have a complete makeover. Like that's unrealistic. But it's, you know, something more gradual. And there's a lot of debate with readers of whether it's a happy ending or not a happy ending. So I don't know if you, any of you're interested in reading the book, and you can <laughs> let me know what you you all think. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if it is a happy ending or not a happy ending, um, having read it, but uh, he's he's an interesting character because I'm not sure how likable he is, and yet I found myself rooting for him. But you know those characters who I guess have questionable uh, agendas at times? But, yeah, I kind of ended up rooting for him, even though I kind of didn't want to. Yeah, I mean, totally. Uh, I, I also... Very clearly, again, I had this image of this guy in the coffee shop who was not a likable person. I mean, he just, mm-hmm. there's something about him really off-putting. And I had this sense of creating a character who was not at all likable. Um, I really wanted to do that. And I was like, I don't want him to be likable. I just want him to be interesting. Um, I, you know, I hear from people, I, there's a certain point in the book that a lot of people comment on that, oh, wow, he kind of turns likable in this one moment or more likable in this one moment. But I, I, I think I, I hope that people root for him. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess that's, that's right. Maybe that's kind of what you're saying. Like, I do hope that people almost at some point feel a little sad for him. Um, but I don't know, that's, uh, you know, it's beyond my control uh, how people react to him, I guess. I think I, I just... like him. Yeah, I think there's an empathy that I felt for him the whole way through because you feel like he is kind of somebody who, I don't know, he's always, there's always pressure for him. There's pressure from his wife and there's pressure from the community, there's pressure from the the rabbis um, and he's trying to please people and he's trying to be like the good boy all the time. And one of the the moments that I kind of liked was his interaction with his mother when she sees the poster um, that Schenkenberg is coming to this guy's library and he's like, not even, you know, as you said before, he's not even sure if he's the second to come out of this library, but obviously it's something he's proud of. And his mom's like, oh, he's coming to your library. It's very exciting. And <laughs> so I thought that was kind of like just that was a really sweet moment in the book where, you know, you can feel like he's, he's trying to please and he's trying to do the right thing, but often he just gets it completely wrong. Yeah, I mean, I think he has like a very like firm sense of uh, of decency, but he's like a completely indecent person. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like uh, yeah, and and part of it is he he's I think so out of touch with himself. Like he he really doesn't. He really has he he's 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 stunted. I mean, I think that's Mm -hmm. best best way to describe him. I mean, someone who really and the book has these certain moments where kind of talks about this. He's he's never really grown up. So he's never developed a sense of what, what he wants. Um, and, and not only what he wants, but um, how he relates to people. So, right. He's always has this like victim uh, mentality and he doesn't ever, he's not uh, completely unable to see his role in, in any interaction. Mm. Um, so I think that's, that's also what really, prevents him from from acting decently is that he just has no ability to see what it is he wants out of relationship what it is he wants out of out of uh interaction Mm. he's kind of he's kind of looks at his father and his brother of like 
as telling him or setting the standard of what he should want out of relationships or what he should want out of life. Um, and, and they're, they're pretty out to lunch too. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because with this book, I felt like I'm a bit reminded of Melbourne because you, you kind of said it in, I guess, a fictional suburb in Chicago that's quite religious. And in a way it kind of reminds me of Melbourne because in Melbourne there's kind of a, a theory where people just don't leave Melbourne. Like people will just stay <laughs> here forever and never, ever want to go <laughs> elsewhere, which I find insane. But um. But I feel like that, you know, that Meiselman is kind of a bit like that in the fact that he's just trying to make things work where he is and like looking even at a, you know, a place like New York or somewhere a bit more exotic, um, which obviously Schreckenberg, uh is goes to, is just like so exotic for him that he's just not ready to, you know, even think about that. Yeah. I mean, again, it goes back to the question of not, he doesn't even I don't, you know, I don't even think he knows what he likes or what he doesn't like. Mm. Um, right. One of the big spoilers in the book, uh, you know, I'll, I'll spoil it now is that he's hardcore into baseball and he needs mm -hmm. to know like every single game what's happening. And then at some point at the end of the book, you even it's like, I, I don't even like baseball. Like <laughs> baseball, <laughs> baseball slow, you know, that's what he tells someone. And, and, uh, and that's, and that's kind of, I think, what happens during this week is he starts to get a sense of what it is he likes and what he does doesn't like. And I think that's really, I think, a lot of times when we think about um, like self-improvement or changing our lives, we think in these like really like grand ways. But I think sometimes it's really like the small things of just thinking like the minute to minute the things that you like, the things that you don't like, uh, the things that cause you cause you pleasure and the things that cause you pain. Mm. Um, and that's, I think what he starts to maybe start to starts to feel a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. One of the characters I want to ask you about is Schenkenberg, who is a writer in the mm. book and he writes allegedly a novel that people aren't too happy with, whether anyone's read it, whether the book actually has been written, whatever. We don't really, we don't really get that far into it, but do you want to tell us a bit more about that character and about, I guess the the reaction of the people in the in the town to him. Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the the great mysteries uh, surrounding Schenkenberg, uh, when the book is when you finish reading the book, and I, it's something I I talk about with readers is is Schenkenberg a good writer? Like how are we how are we supposed to understand Schenkenberg as a writer? Um, is he is he doing more like popular literature, like pop popular literary fiction? Um, like, is he even a famous writer, or does he is he famous for this town because he's had some success? Um, you know, they, they, these are kind of the questions I think we still have about Schenkenberg when we're when we're done reading the book. I mean, I'd say personally, the character of Schenkenberg kind of I think uh, represents my writing before I started writing Meiselman. Um, so again, it tends to be, I would say even, you know, my book is very Jewish, but I also don't see my book as like trying to make a point so much about Judaism, right? I mean, I think it does. And I think you can read into it, but I didn't set out with the agenda of, I want to say this about the Jewish community, or I want to say this about, 
Judaism and rituals. Um, the character of Meiselman is Jewish, and he is a part of that world uh, because that's the world that I'm a part of. And uh, it's like that Philip Roth has that line where people attacked him for his story Epstein, Epstein mm-hmm. is that what it's called, about the uh, adulterer, and they're like, why did you have to make him Jewish? And he mm-hmm. said, I'd, I'd be making a, a bigger point if I had made him not Jewish, because I'd be saying that Jews you know, don't commit adultery. So mm-hmm. I guess it was important for me that like, this is my world, this is the world I write about, and Muslim is a part of that world. Uh, so Schenkenberg then, in contrast, is the writer who is, I'm writing this very Jewish story because I want to say this about the Jewish community. And I mean, this is a whole separate conversation, but I mean, I think this is true. Jews really react positively to that kind of writing. <laughs> um, and, and, and interestingly, I think it's the, the really the Orthodox Jews who really love the writing of Jewish writers who are, who's, I wouldn't say purpose in writing their books, but a major focus of these books is to show like, I've uh, given up my Judaism. I, you know, I grew up religious and it was really traumatic for me. Um, And those are like the books that, you know, are are quite popular with the the, uh, Jewish community. So that's, that's what Schenkenberg I think represents. And that was kind of like my writing, I think at the beginning, when I first started writing, I thought that was the type of writer I had to be, or I wanted to be. And I guess at some point I realized I really did not interest me. And that's, that's not what I wanted to do. So I guess I thought it would be interesting to kind of have him as, as that writer in the book. And originally I had, you know, pages and pages of this book that I had written as a more Schenkenberg type writer. And I had them in the novel and uh, I ended up getting rid of it, but it was like 40, 50 pages of that novel. You know, it's the, it's the book that Meisman's trying to read the whole time. He can't really read it because he's bored. <laughs> yeah. I think one of the one of the really funny aspects of the book was, and, and this kind of goes back to what you're saying about the, the idea that Jews love reading about Jews, um, especially if they're shitting on other people. But the there's a scene in the book where he goes to have his wife's underwear checked by the local rabbi to see if she yeah. is in Nida, um, so that, you know, they can make sure uh, that they can have sex that night. But um, while he's having this discussion, he also is thinking whether the rabbi who has been, I guess, considering whether Schreckenberg is a good character or not um, to speak at the local library. And in his discussion, the rabbi's like, actually, I don't really give a shit. Like, I don't give a shit about that guy. Like, he can write whatever he wants. I don't care. Like, I'm sure it's a good book. And I think that's a bit like, I think that's, that's kind of, that to me is, is so typical of, of, you know, of the community and and how things work. Because I think a lot of the time, like people just want to kick up a fuss because it's, because it's nice to kick up a fuss sometimes. But at the end of the day, everyone's just kind of fascinated. And yeah, it's, yeah, it was a really, I like that aspect. Yeah, like, I don't think the rabbi, you know, the rabbi doesn't care about some reading, doesn't care about some writer. What he cares about is that people see the letter he wrote Mm. saying that this is an awful book that no one should read and no one, you know, this guy shouldn't be speaking like that. That's what's important to the rabbi. Yeah. 
like some re- you know but the reading itself he doesn't he doesn't really care you know he just likes the controversy yeah <laughs> It is funny. Uh, I guess I wanted to ask you as well. We've spoken about Schreckenberg quite a bit, but I guess what was the reaction like, I guess, with your community in Skokie, like when they read the novel? Yeah, it's, 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 it's pretty interesting because this is, this is something I've talked about with other writers of like the sense of before you publish a book, uh, thinking about like how certain people are going to react to the book and how writers are completely off you know uh, and i think i i always imagine that this book um you know like jews would really like it and uh you know religious jews especially i think they would feel like wow like someone wrote a book kind of in our language you know about things we do and i thought they would dig it and i pretty much have gotten complete silence i would say from the jewish community <laughs> uh like very few Jewish publications have even covered the book. I mean, the newspaper here uh, did a review of the book, a very nice review. Um, there was like a, a local Chicago uh, paper uh, that that also, but then like no other Jewish publication covered the book at all. Probably also, I mean, it's like, you know, an indie publisher. And um, I'm like so surprised at how much, you know, readers who aren't familiar with the community how much how much they like the book and you know how interested they are in the book that's really surprised me um but you know but then there are people who have read it who are part of the community and yeah they seem to like it i don't you know i don't again i don't think people feel like um yeah some people are like why is he so into his wife's underwear this guy he's just always <laughs> walking around with his wife's underwear it's just gross you know but those people are the type of people who probably won't like anything i, I wrote or that type of writing but Mm-hmm. um it, it's kind of interesting that yeah i don't know like for some reason the jewish community hasn't really responded so much to this book yeah okay. that's so the responses come from elsewhere yeah okay there you go <laughs> but again I, I think that i think that kind of maybe connects to my my theory of like i think i think this isn't the type of book that they like like they like the book that kind of like has a big message like maybe mm-hmm. either like a historical message or or something um, where the the community and community issues are front and center, which I don't think is the case here. I think the problem is, not that it's a problem, I think the problem is in terms of that stuff, I think people like to be angry with books like this. And I don't think with your book Mm. they can really be angry because he's kind of, like in a way he is, he's kind of at the same time kind of unlikable, but he's really like he's a sympathetic character and there's Mm. nothing really in the book that, that I guess shits on other people to a great extent. And so I think that in that degree, it's kind of a, it's a, it's a novel that isn't going to piss people off in the way that some books do. Right. And I think, I know they're from community here in Melbourne, like they, um, they love a book that is a, about scandal or about, you know, mm-hmm. or about talking about people in really open ways that, um, that are controversial and, um, I think if a book actually tells a story that's kind of typical and kind of, you know, relatively accurate, I don't think they're as interested. Yeah. Yeah. Like well, one, one way I, I always frame it is that, you know, they, they love books where the writer's uh, is talking about the trauma of having to grow up in an Orthodox community. Mm. 
And I guess the way I frame it is like, my husband has suffered a lot of trauma and like, he has, it's not the trauma of like having grown, grown up in an Orthodox community. Like his trauma comes from other, other things. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think that's what kind of makes this book a little different. You yeah. Know? I do want to, um, I guess, draw those obvious, obvious comparisons to things like, you know, Portnoy's Complaint and even something like Cobra enthousi- Enthusiasm. But were, yeah. apart from Stern, was there specific influences writing the book? I mean, I, I guess, obviously, like Roth was, you know, Roth and Bellow were, and, and Malamud um, were really huge for me at the time that I was starting to write the book. And I, and as the other other writers as well, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I certainly think like there are differences. I don't think Meiselman is definitely not uh, a Rothian uh, mm-hmm. type character, right? Like, you know, he he, you know, he's the Rothian characters. I think are in a weird way, maybe they're more in touch with themselves, but they just don't give a crap, you know, like they own it they own in a certain sense their awful behavior um and i think you know i mean this is like a pretty tired conversation about like the treatment of women i think Mm -hmm. that there's certainly and i don't think this is something intentional because i'm not like sitting down i was actually quite nervous like well how are people going to react to like the women characters in my book and i think probably Mm -hmm. because of raw when, when you're going for that type of humor you and especially where there's you know a lot of sex in the book as there is in mine you start to to worry but it's not like something i could control like i just write the book and then whatever it is it is and people i think that i have a generally the women are quite strong that's the feedback i've been getting that the women in my book are actually like the strong characters and it's like the men who are really all the like the weak characters in the book yeah uh so i think probably very different from roth in that regard um but yeah there's certainly like they were huge influences but it's it's strange because people always ask me this question about you know like the book is funny and like they ask me what is like how to how do you write like funny scenes or and i i, I don't know i still really don't know how to answer that question it's, it's like uh it's not that intentional uh i mean i guess you become aware of it at some point but you're really just trying to create pressure in the scene um and it, you know if it's funny but I, it's not only funny i'm going for like i want you know, I want it to be a bit painful, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's, it's not like, oh, I want this scene to be really funny, but I really want, I really just want there to be a lot of like pressure building up in the scene. And I just really want a lot of discomfort. And I guess discomfort is usually pretty funny. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Yeah, I don't know if I really answered your question about like influences, but yeah, I mean, they definitely, like all these writers were like definitely huge influences. Um, and, 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 and probably also, I mean, we talk about it in the, the Gateway book, but I think also for like the wrong reasons, I think in many ways, like when I started reading, when I started reading Roth, he was probably one of the first writers I, I really started to read after sitting in Brazilian history class and started writing. I went and read a tremendous amount of Roth and, and my feeling was, oh man, like he's writing about Jews. I could write about Jews. I could write about, you know, the community mm-hmm. and not picking up that again he's really writing these stories about people who are just living in these communities um yeah. like the point isn't to write about the communities. so i mean some maybe some of the goodbye columbus stories that's more the point but 
So I think I learned a lot of the wrong lessons from them in the beginning, for sure. Yeah. Cool. Okay. We'll talk more about that in Gateway Books shortly. But um, I want to ask you as well, what are you working on at the moment? Yeah, so um, <laughs> I don't know how much to give away because, but I don't know, what the heck, who knows even if anyone will ever decide to publish this book. But uh, <laughs> after after I finished Meiselman, you know, I decided to start on a new project. And I would say, I would say at around that time, I... I uh, I read this story. It was like a, sh a short little scene. It was about a historical figure. That part I don't really want to give away. But it was this one scene of tremendous moral failing. And I was really taken with this scene. And I said to myself, wow, I got to use this somehow. This is like, I can't, I can't, I can't like get, I can't shake this story. It was so powerful to me. But I couldn't really figure out like, how, what would I do with this? I don't want to write historical fiction. That just seems like way too much work and like research. And and I like people like complaining to me that I got like this wrong and that wrong. And it's just like not my interest to sit and write historical fiction. Kudos to people who do enjoy writing that kind of stuff because some people write great historical fiction, but it's just not my bag. So I started writing another book and uh, I was writing it and I just hated it. I hated, I hated this book I was working on. And it, it's a very clear feeling when you hate a book because with Meiselman, for the most part, like, yeah, even if I was like frustrated, I could still read parts of it and feel excited and still laugh. I mean, I could still take Meiselman off my shelf and read a scene and laugh, even though I've read it, you know, 4,000 times. And, and I couldn't even open this document. I hated working on it so much. And then again, like this in the back of my head, I keep thinking about this one scene and I would started doing like a little research about the scene, trying to get more of the backstory and learn more of the characters that were involved in the scene. And for years this went on, I, I was writing this, what I would call the Meiselman sequel, but it wasn't about Meiselman for like two and a half years. And I just hated it. And I couldn't get into the book at all in any way. And then um, I, heard this interview with uh, Otessa Moshevig and she was and this is like a famous story everyone knows about when she decided to write Eileen she used one of these like uh one of these like self-help books of how to write a novel in 90 days mm -hmm. and I was like I wonder I wonder what that's like like, <laughs> like what, is, what is that like Otessa Moshevig like, she's pretty badass and Eileen's a pretty badass book so like I had like these audible credits so I'm like I'm gonna I'm gonna try it so, and the guys, and I'm like, it's, it's lame as heck. And I can never admit to anyone that I've actually used this book, but uh, I mean, now I'm admitting it obviously, but I would sit down and I'd, I'd put the guy in and he has all these exercises. It took me around four months to get through three days because it just for, you know, got me going. And I was just writing page after page after page after page. And all of a sudden, like I was in this new book and uh, which was based on this one story I had heard, you know, like three or four years ago, you know, four years ago now. And basically the story in a nutshell is um, it takes place in 1943. And it's about the Soviet Union sent these two Jews, uh, one a man named uh, Solomon Michoels, who was 
the biggest actor in uh, the Soviet Union at the time, and, and really like a, a world famous actor, he sent him and this poet, its successor, to America in 1943 to raise money for the Red Army. And it was really based, Stalin had this, you know, these anti-Semitic ideas of, well, the Jews control America. And so, and they have a lot of money. So we'll get a lot of money from the Jews there and we'll get the U.S. to enter the war. And uh, so it's really about like this, it's kind of like a buddy comedy, though it's a very sad story. Uh, I mean, the Jews all die in the end. Uh, that's, that's really the ending of the story, but uh, it's kind of, I guess, written like somewhat as a buddy, a buddy comedy. Uh, Michael's is like this really kind of larger than life figure. Uh, but Pfeffer, the story is kind of told through Pfeffer, who was an informant and his job, I mean, he was like a really kind of not great poet and his job really was just to watch Michael and make sure he doesn't get into trouble. And uh, the book really, they were on a nine month trip to the US, Canada, Mexico, UK, but this really just looks at like two and a half weeks of that trip, um, which, um, yeah, so it's, I, you know, I think it's, I think it's pretty good. I feel pretty good about it. It's, it's pretty different from Eiselman, although I've noticed it's like a lot of the same themes. You know, maybe that's like writers are always writing the same book, but they're become more efficient at writing it. I think is what I've learned. Uh, it was a much shorter book, so that sounds yeah. really interesting. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So we'll see. Yeah, I feel good about it now. Now, yeah. Very cool. All right. I might ask you about your gateway books now. Um, I know we've mentioned quite a few of them, but what were some of the other books that got you into this world of literature? Yeah. So as I said, like as a kid, I didn't, you know, I didn't read a, a ton of fiction growing up. I mean, I, I definitely had my different stages. I remember as a little kid being very into Lord of the Flies. Um, like I just thought it was the coolest thing ever, but then I'd always wonder I would end up as Piggy. Um, so. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think Piggy so, was yeah, Jewish. So, was he? No, sounds, I, he, he, no, yeah. he? I mean, he had the glasses. So <laughs> <sounds right. laughs> um, yeah, so, you know, when, when, I, mean, I really wasn't reading that much fiction until, until that day in uh, Brazilian history. And I would say, like, right away, I started, you know, I started reading Roth. And I started, you know, Goodbye Columbus, Poor Noise Complaint. I would say, though, my Life as a Man was definitely the book that I was most taken with. I mean, I loved Portnoy, and I think Goodbye Columbus are great, but there was something about My Life as a Man, maybe like the confessional tone, and there's a certain ugliness to the character there. And it, it's so, we, you know, the reader so connects it with Roth, the author, and it's like almost impossible not to. This is something I was really drawn to. Uh, and again, it's like that. I, I, I kind of was like, yeah, th this is the kind of writing I, I want to do. But then at the same time, I also got, I got very into to Malamud, um, especially a book called uh, Pictures of Feidelman, which is these six uh, stories about this guy Feidelman, who's this Jew from the Bronx who decides he's going to go to Italy and become, you know, a, a master painter. And, um, and yeah, I mean, I think those stories of immigrants uh, always really kind of resonated with me. Um, of all kinds um, so those are really big books for me and then when I really started getting into writing obviously I was like reading Hemingway and then Carver uh, like I really got into Carver at the beginning um, 
I know that's probably the most cliche answer, but I think, I think what I liked about Carver, you know, was this idea of, you know, not, not only his idea of, you know, show don't tell, which I actually, I know there's a lot of disagreement about this, but I do think it's a very important lesson for beginning writers to kind of create these scenes and like focus on how characters occupy space. This was such an important lesson for me. And uh, I got I got very into this idea of like these contained uh, contained spaces and letting all the action happen in these contained spaces. So so I was reading Carver, and then someone's like, "Oh, you should read um, you know Antrim, Donald Antrim." So like the Verificationist and a Hundred Brothers, which also is like the same thing, this contained space where everything is just happening in this one room, or like in the Verificationist, where it's like happening in this one table. <laughs> Uh, in, a, in a in a diner, right? If they're in a diner, um, and then and then Leonard Leonard Michaels also uh, the men's club. So so those really kind of gave me a sense of like how to create a scene, how to build a scene, um, and yeah, I mean like my Carver. I, I really wanted to be Carver. All my stories, the characters are like drinking vermouth all the time. They're really, <laughs> really <laughs> I started drinking a lot of vermouth. Uh, and they were, they were, you know, I, I would kind of go up and back between writing these very Jewish stories and then I'd have other stories about, you know, a guy with a, a mole that he wanted to get rid of. Um, I kind of, but I think I was just really kind of learning at the time. And then, you know, when I, I was also very into uh, Katsia or Katsi, I don't know how people, will, you know, pronounce that. But again, I was kind of thinking when I was reading him, Oh, I have to be writing these political stories because I'm from Israel. I'm like, how do I, how does he do it? I mean, I, I love his stuff. Also, I was really kind of taken with how there's like no humor in his books, like there's <laughs> like zero humor. Zero. I mean, it, it's quite it's quite like staggering. Like when you think about it, uh, I mean, it's pretty rare where you find an author like that where there's like nothing. Like, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, I was a bit you know. And then and then when I got to when I was doing my MFA, and again, I was like hating my writing, but I think what really turned it for me, which kind of put me in that Meiselman mindset, big gateway books at that period were definitely, I read Sabbath Theater, um, which I think there's definitely that influence mm-hmm. of, in Meiselman. And I was really taken with this idea of like, you know, I love Mickey Sabbath. Like mm-hmm. I, you know, I want to create a Mickey Sabbath type character. Um, you know, he, he's so repulsive and fun to be with. And uh, another book, big book for me two big books for me at that time also were uh stanley elkin the Dick gibson show uh in general i was reading a lot of stanley elkin um i had a teacher who was very into elkin got me into him um and the Dick gibson show which is just a fantastic book and what i think i love about that book is you know it's, it's utterly exhausting that book i mean in elkin in general and i was like wow this this guy's like you know he's I guess in my mind is the anti-carver. You know, I could kind of have it both ways where I'm creating these scenes, but also the scenes are kind of unfolding and they just go where they, you know, wherever you want them to go. And, uh, and Dick Gibson shows like that. I mean, it's about a radio show host and he's hosting all these, you know, different weirdos to his radio show. And he, you know, and Elkin gives them the space to talk about, you know, their conspiracy theories and to show off, all their different freakish tricks they can play. And, 
Uh, and obviously the language, uh, the language he used is, you know, so free. And I think going back to even when I'm talking, was talking about ghostwriting, it's, you know, Elkin is the one who says, you know, every, your character, your protagonist should have a job. And again, it's like a bad idea. It's just like the job has its language. And that's how then the person sees the world through that language. Um, and I, I really like was taken out with that idea. And that was certainly big when thinking of Maslin. And, and the next big book at that time I read was uh, Stephen Dixon, uh, Frog, you know, which, which I'm not even sure if I ever finished that book, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like I, I would, I would just like read and then I would go back and, and read like other parts. I was like, wait, was that chapter like two, two sentences long? And I would go back and, <laughs> and read it. And Again, I mean, I think I think you see a lot of Meiselman. Uh, I mean, you see a lot of Stephen Dixon. I think in Meiselman almost that, where mm-hmm. it's just like the mind just goes wherever it wants, you know, wherever it's going to go. Um, so I would say those those are definitely, you know, the big books for me. Like before I started writing, you know, writing uh, Meiselman for sure. Yeah. yeah, I find Stephen Dixon interesting because I got introduced to him fairly recently. I've got Frog on my shelf, but I, I, I've only read Interstate. But yeah, another kind of Jewish novelist who no one remembers. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. He's cool. Yeah. I mean, I think like, uh, yeah. I mean, Bruce J. Friedman, Stephen Dixon, Elkin, I guess, yeah, they're all, they're all Jews. And uh, even Elkin, I don't know how much people, you know, still read him. But mm. uh, I mean, I, I think, you know, well, the one, the well, I haven't read all his books yet, but they're, you know, they're just incredible. Yeah. Yeah, I have to um, read some more of him. I think I've only read one thing, so I'll yeah. put him on my list. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Yeah, uh, A Bad Man is also a really good Elkin book. Okay. Um, yeah, and, and The Living End. Yeah, those are the ones I'd recommend. Perfect. All right, yeah. done. I'll add them to the endless TBR pile. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Speaking of that, do you want to tell me about the books you're currently reading or you've recently enjoyed or you're looking forward to? Oh wow! Yeah, this is a this is a long list. Uh, I have to. I, I guess I should start by saying that your podcast has definitely, you know, influenced my reading. And in fact, I go to this fantastic used bookstore in Tel Aviv called Halpers, and I'm usually just, you know, in a state of paralysis when I'm, you know, faced with the uh, bookshelves there. And what I end up doing is I open uh, the the app. I mean, I open the uh, podcast. And I just look at everyone's, you know, top 10s and everyone's gateway books and kind of conduct my search through that. So, uh, so like I just read, you know, uh, Bram Presser's Book of Dirt, which um, as someone who's now, you know, finishing up a, a book of historical fiction really kind of blew me away and intimidated me. And it's such a beautiful book. And the whole time I was just thinking, I can't, I can't wait to read this book again, because I, I know it's going to be that much better the second time I read it. Mm-hmm. And then I read also based on your recommendation, I read uh, Death, Notes on a Suicide, which was uh, you know translated by Daniel Kennedy and by Zalman Schnorr. Uh, just a devastating book, brutal in every way uh hard to get through almost it's, it's such a such a heavy book but also fantastic um i've been getting very into javier marias uh so i read the infa- brilliant brilliant yeah. uh, i read the infatuations and uh um i forget the name of the other one heart so white yeah. and i read them back to back 
and just brilliant. So I went out and I got uh, All Souls and uh, Berta Isla. Yeah. And uh, I can't wait to read those. And and I, I, I was talking about this on, on Twitter. I brought this subject up the other day about how uh, I find a lot of times I'll read a book by an author and it's like one of my favorite books of all time. And then I'll never read anything else by the writer. The writer. It's like, I don't know if I, I feel like nothing will compare to it. So, so, you know, um, so like, for example, Helen DeWitt, you know, it's a good example. The Last Samurai uh, is like one of my favorite books. So, you know, the book really like blew me away, but I finally got lightning rods and uh, I just peeked and read like the first, you know, 20 pages and wow, mind blowing. That first chapter was so good. And also with Coover, Robert Coover, um, the baseball, the Universal Baseball Association is one mm. of my all-time favorite books. And I never read anything else by Coover. And so um, A Public Burning, I think that's like yeah. 10 people brought that book up on your show. <laughs> so, uh, so I finally got that. I'm a very excited. Um, Sam Lipsight's new book, uh, No One Left to Come Looking for You. Uh, Sam was my teacher. And uh, Hori is my teacher. He was, you know, a favorite writer of mine. I mean, really one of the great comedic writers. I think Hark, uh, his last novel, I think is a very, very underrated book. Um, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. I just read Sarah Lippman's book, Letch, her new novel. It's not out yet. It comes out in a couple months. We, we share a publisher. I don't know if you've read anything by Sarah Lippman. No, I haven't. Um, she's brilliant. I mean, she's brilliant. She has, she has two collections. I, w- I, w- I went to a reading, not for her. I just went to the, some reading and she happened to be one of the readers. And I was so blown away by her reading. And, and then that night I just went online and like read three or four stories by her. And then I contacted her the next day and I'm like, I love your stuff. And she has two collections, but now she has her first novel coming out. And her sentences are just, you know, funny and uh, so full of life and uh her, her stories just feel like there's this energy of the characters are just about to burst and everything's about to turn into a shit storm and uh <laughs> and this novel this novel's great uh i'm very excited uh christian tabordo uh i think they're reissuing a bunch of his books from what mm. i hear i think uh either the end of this year or beginning of next year i i always often say like Twitter, yeah, yeah, it's the worst thing in the world, uh, except that it's greatly enhanced my reading life. <laughs> and uh, I would say up there on the top is definitely uh, becoming familiar with uh, Tabordo's work. And the books are, each book is so different. And I, I find it even as a writer, it's so inspiring how it almost feels as if he has a sense of like he's going to tackle a different like challenge with each book that he set up for himself um and i've read three of that three you know three of his books already and each one is like radical i mean one's a collection but even in the collection each story is so different and and interesting and he has a book called tuflahoma and it's interesting because we were talking before about you know yeshiva and uh like I, I, I said when I read this book, Tuflahoma, it's almost like studying the Talmud, it's like Talmudic in a way. And I think, I think the great books are in the sense where you're always, you're trying to figure out like, what is the writer doing here? Uh, what language is the writer speaking? How are these terms being used? And 
and like the great books i mean like the planes is a, is a great example of of that all right where it just like keeps like circling back on itself and you're trying to figure out the terms and and uh the geography of everything and and tuflahoma i i put it right up there yeah. um where it's a, such an incredible reading experience like like malloy you know the, those types of books where you just in that world so i'm really excited uh to read to read the reissues um a couple other ones i think I, I heard you i heard you commenting the other day in an interview about how you you're starting to target publishers and i think that's true like uh like sagging sagging meniscus right is that, yeah. is that the publisher they they have such good stuff like i I read the Jeff Chone book and this Lee Klein book last year. And then when I finished reading them, I'm like, oh, they're both, they're both sagging meniscus. And I think they both have books coming out mm. uh, in the next six months. Uh, both the, the Lee Klein, his book, Neutral Evil, really a small book, fantastic. Um, and an Astrophil where, where Tabordo hit his, uh, Marcus Pactor, which is yeah. a great, great Jewish American writer. I mean, mm. That last collection, uh, Begad, Who Begad, Who Begad, is just brilliant, I think. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and, and I should say last, uh, the last book is um, Aaron Hamburger, who's a, he's a friend of mine, but he's also, we read each other's stuff, and uh, our writing is very different, but um, he has a new book coming out I'm very excited for, because I've read like 10 different drafts of it, and I'm amazed like each draft just gets better and better and it's always really exciting to see someone whom you admire and the writing you admire exciting to see their work finally come out and i think people are going to love it it's called hotel cuba okay yeah it's interesting it's about it's about it's about how jews like in the 1920s or 30s Mm. they couldn't get visas to the united states so they would uh go to cuba to try and try to get into the united states from cuba yeah wow so yeah okay so yeah, a lot of great stuff uh, to read. We'll take a quick break here. On Beyond the Zero, we're speaking with Avna Landis. This episode is brought to you by the Nicki Minaj biography, Wet Ass Pussy. Ghost written by Joshua Cohen. Comes with a free mop. Available everywhere you get good books. We're back on Beyond Zero. It's time for Avner's Top 10. Oh, wow. All right. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, guess, I don't know. Everyone gives like their preamble of like, so hard to pick and this. So <laughs> I guess, I guess, uh, I, I guess general idea for me when picking the top 10 are books that I really want to come back to before I die because I really have fond memories of reading them and uh and also books that you know that just hold a special place uh in my heart um so I'll, I'll do it chronologically I guess is the best way to do it um starting with 1876 uh George Eliot's Daniel Deronda um I mean I love I love Eliot uh, I was really into Eliot uh you know years ago unfortunately I haven't read too much Eliot since but Daniel Deronda Thing I think that I love about it so much is that she really indulges her interests in the book. Like there's all these like weird, you know, she, you know, there's big discussions about, you know, proto-Zionism in the book and identity. I mean, basically there's a character who's 
he's a Zionist and he goes to this non-Jewish character and he's like, you have to carry the torch for me. And the guy's like, I'm not even Jewish. Uh, <laughs> but that's a, like, that's a really interesting, I guess, topic for me, like the question of identity and taking on other people's identities. Uh, but there's a lot about gambling in the book because Elliot was very into gambling, you know, and she's really fascinated. There's also a lot about um, phrenology, like the shapes of people's mm. uh, skulls and like what they could tell you about someone's like psychological makeup. And uh, she was very into that. Like she thought that was, you know, um, I mean, she thought that was like a real thing. And that's in the book. So I think I, I love the book when I read it. And I think, again, it's like this idea where she just, is indulged her interest and just threw it all into the book as opposed to, you know, writing like a very straightforward book, which some of her books are more, you know, straightforward. So uh, there's a certain wildness there that I really like. Uh, the next book is uh, Babel's uh, The Red Cavalry Stories, you know, which were written in the 1920s. I don't know, when I put this on the list, I was like, well, I really got to go back and read these again. Um, yeah, I mean, the, 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 these stories had a, just a tremendous impact on me. Um, I think, I mean, you know, he gets at something that a lot of good fiction gets at, this question of kind of finding yourself in this gray zone or like this no, no man's land and having to make a decision, a moral decision, and that's going to determine which way you go. And and that, that was so amazing to me. All the stories are kind of like that. They're, especially in that book, they're like a few pages, but they have this store, you know, this one decision that has to be made that's going to have major ramifications for the character. Um, you know, and especially his character is like, he's pushing them. Like, can you embrace the violence? You know, can, can, you, can you embrace the, you know, immorality? Um, and let, let's be honest. You know, that's a question uh, many of us are asked, you know, <laughs> uh, as we go through life. And so, uh, and, we, and we like to think we always, you know, of course, uh, choose correctly. But uh, yeah, so that, that's a great book. Um, the next book is uh, Dubliners by Joyce, you know, 1914. I'd say one of my first uh, workshop experiences, we read a different uh, story from Dubliners, uh, you know, for each class probably one of the best workshop experiences I've ever had. I mean, those stories also just, they really hold up. They, I go back to them constantly. In fact, I just read uh, The Boarding House uh, a few weeks ago. And and Joyce Joyce is, I mean, I don't know. I, I love how, again, there's, there's something uh, really free in his stories. Like you're never really sure where they're going. And uh, he's always like keep, keep keeping you on your toes. And this general theme, I think, is really was always really powerful to me that you are who you are, and there's really no escaping it. You know, you're 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 stuck in this predicament, whatever it is. Um, and um, yeah, that's uh, Dubliners. Uh, the next book is uh, Isaac Rosenfeld, Passed from Home, which was written in 1946. I don't know. Many people don't know who Rosenfeld is. Um, I always say like the, the, the trinity of Jewish American writing is always like Bellow, uh, Roth, and Malamud. And I always say there's like an alternative trinity of uh, Rosenfeld, Leonard Michaels, and Grace Paley. Uh, and, 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 and Rosenfeld, really sad guy. He, was, he grew up with Bellow and they were you know best friends growing up. And and ultimately, he saw Bellow as his rival, 
and he he moved to New York and he became a star of the intellectual scene there. And he was just so full of self doubt and self hatred. This guy, he wrote, he ended up writing just this one book called Passage from Home, and it is just a brilliant, brilliant book about this precocious uh, young teen who grows up with an immigrant father. His mother died when he was younger and he's very into books and he sees the books as giving him these, this power over his father. You know, my father's the ignorant immigrant who knows nothing and I'm the sophisticated 14 year old. And uh, yeah, I'm very taken with these stories of uh, fathers and sons and uh there, there's, there's a lot here. Uh, you know, he was, he was very, uh, very into Freud, Rosenfeld. So like he, he, he gets the hot, or the kid gets the hot for this aunt, and he decides he's gonna go. He, he decides he's gonna set her up with this other guy, and then it turns out that the father had a relationship with her. So it gets very messy in a Freudian type of way. Yeah. And uh, it's, just, it's, it's just a brilliant book. I, I, you know, I could read it. You know, uh, every two, three years, just never get sick of it. Um, and it's sad. He died, I think, at age 38, Rosenfeld, of a heart attack, like alone wow. in a room back in Chicago. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, the next book actually is Saul Bellows, Sees the Day, uh, which is, you know, Bellows' uh, fourth book. I don't even know if it's Bellows' best book, Sees the Day. I don't know if I'd even say it's his best book, but definitely the most meaningful book to me i actually every yom kippur i make a point to try to read this book mm. um sometimes i don't get all the way through but uh sometimes i do and i think what i love about the book again it's it's about fathers and sons and it's really about the expectations we put um on loved ones and how often those expectations aren't met and um you know, for for those who haven't read it, I, I you know, I you, should, you know, not only should you read it, but you know, the question you have to ask at the end of the book is, is the father cruel or not? Because, you know, I think there is the suggestion that he is cruel, and then, um, but uh, I think that 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 question of is the father cruel or does it even matter? You know, is the real problem that the son expects too much of his father and he can't learn the lesson that you could set expectations all day, but you know. That sometimes they're just never going to be met. Um, it's a very, very sad book. Um, so I, I really recommend that. Um, the next book is Vasily Grossman, Life and Fate, um, which I actually recently read. It's a you know, massive book um, by Grossman, was really one of the first reporters to see what was happening um, in, in, like, in, I guess, the Western you know, part that the Nazis had taken over, all the Jews were being killed. He was really the first one who got a sense of the tremendous devastation to such a degree that he started publishing articles about it. And the Soviet Union didn't like that a Jew was the one who was breaking the story. So then they ended up shipping him back to Moscow and putting a non-Jewish Soviet reporter to cover it. But he ended up writing, you know, two, two, two books about it. And uh, like you know, Stalingrad is the first one. And Life and Fate, which it really covers this one family, the Shaposhnikovs, and it goes into every single family member, what's happening them, to them during the war. And it's a very, I mean, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a hard book at places, in places. It's a very funny book in places. 
Um, and it, there's always this ongoing tension in the book of, you know, the Soviets are the, the one, you know, they're the, the one group, you know, people or, yeah, the one people who are fighting the Nazis. But then they're also back home. They're really oppressed, starting to oppress the Jews and just lock, you know, Jews away. And um, it's a really fantastic book. Um, you know, I, I really recommend it. And uh, I think I got what I got a couple more books, two more books. Uh, my next book is Frederick Raphael uh, is the writer. He wrote a book called Lindemann, 1964. I feel like many British people know who uh, Raphael is, but Frederick Raphael actually ended up becoming a very successful screenwriter. He won an Oscar for uh, the movie Darling. He also was uh, wrote with Kubrick. He wrote Eyes Wide Shut with Kubrick. Um, and he wrote these experimental novels like in the late 50s, early 60s. I think he ended up writing like more than 20 novels. I've ne I haven't read any of the other books. Um, my therapist was always like saying, you have to read Lindman, you have to read Lindman. And I, I finally ended up reading it. I still like always trying to figure out why he was so desperate for me to read this book. But uh, I actually just reread it because I knew I was coming on here and I wanted it in my top 10. I was like, well, I read it when I was like 26 and I wonder if it's still good. And I read it again, and I think reading it as someone who's even older, I, I really loved it this time around. Um, and it tells, it, it focuses on a true story, I mean, it's a fictional account of um, an incident from 1942 when an unseaworthy ship full of Holocaust refugees sank off the coast of Turkey after it was forced out of port by a British and Turkish official. And Jacob Lindman is one of two survivors. And he goes back to London and he's a broken man, you know, after what he's witnessed. But then I don't want to give too much away, but as the book goes on, we, there turns out that his best friend wants, or not a best friend, he's like a young man who's taken an interest in him and they spend a lot of time together, wants to write a movie about Lindman and about the boat. And then we start having these questions, wait, was Lindman one of the two survivors or was he one of the British officials who was responsible for sending the boat back out. And uh, there's like 50 pages at the end of uh, Lindman like cracking up and having this breakdown. And it's really kind of amazing because you're just getting like scraps of like six or seven different storylines and you're kind of trying to piece it together and figure out five or six different stories about who Lindman really is. But it's, you know, really a tremendous story about identity and guilt and, um, uh, I, I recommend it. Um, and the next book is Frederick X. Lee's A Fan's Note from uh, 1968. Yeah, one of my all-time favorite books. I, I, I've mentioned this to writers sometimes, and they always think I'm crazy. But I, I, I've made the comment that sometimes a book is so overwhelming for me that I'm finding it so good, I can't like get to the end because my mind just starts racing too much. And like, I don't know if that's just a attention deficit uh, issue, um, but like a fan's note is like that where like I start, I, it took me, I think years. So I was really able to finish it because I was just, the, I just found my head was always kind of just going to a million different places. I was always going back and rereading paragraphs. Uh, or sometimes I would feel like I was just 
started to read for story and I was missing out on too much, reading it too quickly. Um, but I feel like it's a book that shouldn't work because it's about a man with a mental illness. And I know there are plenty of books about people with mental illness, but they're also, I think they're exceptions because like, what does the reader hang on to when someone has a mental illness? It's like that, that the protagonist almost kind of ends up being like a spectacle. It's very hard to maybe identify because you're just looking at someone who has an illness and you're trying to understand the illness. And, and, and he's crazy. I mean, he's crazy in, in the book and he's, he's a, you know, he's very anti-Semitic. He's very racist. Uh, and yet there's something about it again, where we're kind of really identify with him. And I think it's, I think it's this idea that he always has that things are going to work out for him. Like he knows, he's like, I know I have these issues. I'm going to go get treatment right now. And then when I come out, I'm just going to like, I'm going to become famous. Like he always thinks he's going to become famous. He always thinks he's going to become rich. And uh, it's just, maybe it's like a very American thing, but maybe also it's a very human idea. Um, but I think it really, um, yeah, it's one of my favorite books. I mean, I have finished it and now I've read it uh, several times. <laughs> and it's definitely a book also I go back and just like, open it up and read, you know, a chapter here and there. Um, and the next book is uh, Fran Roth or Oreo from 1974. Uh, this is a book that's obviously become like a huge uh, cult classic in recent years. Um, Marlon James writes, has a really nice introduction. And, and I don't know, I'm trying to find out where, I don't know what I did with my copy, but uh, I'm not sure which edition it is. Marlon James, and he, he posits that when the book came out, you know, because Fran Ross, who I guess she, the book is, she, she's uh, half Jewish and half black. Um, so his idea is that because she was black, she was completely ignored by kind of the experimental writers of her day. And um, yeah, the book went nowhere. I mean, I think they said there was like one review in some paper somewhere. And uh, then she kind of like went off and she went to write for uh, Richard Pryor and she died, I think, nine, nine, ten years later. Um, and then and then it was writers like uh, Paul Beatty and I think Marlon James who really kind of brought this book back and discovered it. And it's really about this 14 year old girl who has a Jewish father who, who left her when she was a baby or maybe, and uh, then uh, a mother who was uh, never really home because she was a uh, dance in a dance troupe and the grandparents raised her and she determined she's going to find uh, her father in New York city. Cause he's left her all these like really obscure clues uh, as a way to find him. And it's just a wild book. It's very funny. I mean, it's these long, um, you know, like ob weird observations, her thinking about which, who smells worse, a basketball player or a football player, and she kind of will analyze it. And then at the end, she says, well, maybe it's a hockey player. Does ice absorb uh, funk, you know? So it's a lot of those kinds of conversations. It's really a wild book. Um, and it's a favorite. Uh, and the last book, I think this is the last one, is a uh, Dutch book by the writer Cease Noteboom, uh, Rituals. It's a novella from uh, 1980. Uh, Adrian Dixon is a translator. Um, and I don't know, it's like a novella. I find this a novella. It's like one of these books where you feel like it's the, like perfectly structured. 
And I don't know if you're familiar with the book. Um, it's divided into three sections. So the first section one takes place in 1963. And it starts with the protagonist, Innie Winthrop, who he attempts and fails to commit suicide after uh, his wife leaves him. And Innie is this free spirit. He's an art dealer. He writes horoscopes for a local paper. He plays the stock market all day. And he really, there's no sense of order to his life or his thinking. Um, and then, then section two of the book goes to 1953. And it's about Innie's relationship with a man named Arnold Todd, who's this rigid man who's all about clocks and watches and time. And like every minute of every day is kind of planned out and considered and everything's about efficiency and and then the last part of the book is 1973 and it's in his relationship with philip's son arnold and they, they don't speak to one another arnold and philip and and arnold is also this very rigid uh person who's very into uh japan and japanese aesthetic and particularly japanese tea ceremonies and one of the really great things of the book is he's very, not only is he very into the Japanese aesthetic and Japanese uh, tea ceremonies, but he refuses to visit Japan because he doesn't think it's authentic. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, it's, you know, just, uh, I guess I'm very interested in the, you know, the question of rituals. Uh, someone who grew up with rituals still, um, you know, rituals is a big part of my life. And this question of uh, what, what helps us get us through the day is it is it order or is it just you know not, or lack of order um and um yeah that's that's it that's top 10 yeah brilliant once again someone has added more to my tbr pile <laughs> and it's um getting overwhelming but thank you so much that was great thank you uh, this is so much fun uh such a great um opportunity to kind of consider my reading and writing life and you know i haven't done that so thank you yeah <laughs> well <laughs> before we wrap it up and i'll let you get back to your nice summer afternoon uh do you want to tell us where we can get your book and where we can get in touch with you um yeah so you can get in touch with me i'm, I'm only really on twitter uh avner at avner landies uh, I, I don't know i don't think any of my tweets are that all that interesting but definitely uh, stop by and say hi and my book, obviously, it's best to buy books from independent bookstores or directly from the publisher. Uh, but, you know, if money's tight, uh, I don't know, Amazon, they, they sell the book for like nine bucks. And uh, <laughs> you can get the Kindle version for like three bucks. And you can, of course, go to your local library. Most, most libraries, I think, are carrying the book. Um, and, uh, you know, take it out for free. So. I just really want people to read it. And uh, yeah, let me know what you think. Well, thank you so much for joining me. It's been such a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you. It's really been a blast. Thank you so much. Thanks once again to Abner Landis. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at BeyondZeroPod. And you can email us at BeyondTheZeroPod at gmail.com. We'll be back with your next episode very soon. Thank you.